As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Dose Leadership Podcast, episode 208. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hello, welcome to Dose of Leadership. Richard Ryerson here. So happy you're tuning into the show. This is the show where we talk about leadership. We bring on experts, people all over the world, from CEOs to business leaders, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, faith-based leaders, military leaders, you name it. People just like you and I who are trying to become better leaders. We talk about common sense leadership, you know, because it drives me crazy how we think leadership is all about the charismatic individual. We think we have to be so technically proficient in some task or some talent to become a great leader. And the reality is it's all about adding value to somebody else's life. It's about getting the culture right, both personally, both in your, the organizations you're at. And leadership is at the heart of it. It's central to it. It's central to every aspect of our lives. So it's in all of our interests to learn how to become better leaders. That's what this show is dedicated to do. If you like what you hear on Dose of Leadership, and again, if you're a fan of the show and if you haven't done so already, please take the time to subscribe to this podcast. If you've got a mobile device, you can subscribe to it and take it on the go and listen to it whenever you want. If you've got an Android device, Stitcher is a good app to listen to the show on. If you've got an Apple device, of course, the podcast app through iTunes, it's all free. You can listen to it there. But again, subscribing, rating, and reviewing this show does so much for the visibility it's getting become a noisy world out there. Any chance you can help me in keeping the visibility front and center and gaining a new momentum and new listeners to the show, I'd be highly appreciative. Again, thanks for all the feedback, too. Drop me a line at richard at doseofleadership.com. Let me know where you're at. I love hearing from everybody out there, and I promise you I will get back to you and answer every single email. You can go to my contact page at doseofleadership.com, or you can email me directly, richard at doseofleadership.com. And it'll come directly to me. And again, I appreciate the feedback. Great guest today, Linda Rotenberg. I'm just, just, I don't know, this month has just been so much fun for me, just the quality of the guests and the conversations that we're having. And Linda Rotenberg is is a, a special episode for me, too. She's got a book out there. And again, I read a lot of books, and I know you've heard me say it 
how it's one of my favorite books. But I got to tell you, there are some quality material out there if you're thinking about becoming a better leader, if you're thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, this book is definitely for you. It's called Crazy is a Compliment. And again, Linda Rotenberg is the author. And Linda Rotenberg has really spent her career helping innovators think big. You know, we never think big enough. You know, and her philosophy is if you if people aren't calling you crazy, then you're not thinking big enough. And I love that. You know, these days Taking chances just isn't for, you know, we have in our mind about taking chances. It's all about the millennials, the college dropouts, the someone that's, you know, that <clears throat> the life hacker that's creating an app. No, no, no. It's not about that. It's, I don't care if you work for a Fortune 500 company or nonprofit, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if um, whatever the case may be, you need to think and act like a change maker to claim your path of success. And this is such a great book. And, and Rotenberg is an expert at that. And she's the co-founder and CEO of Endeavor which is the world's leading organization devoted to identifying, mentoring, and investing in fast-growing businesses. And um, she's helped thousands upon thousands of entrepreneurs take the risk out of risk-taking, and that's what this book is all about. Now, Rotenberg, she takes her, um, she draws on her own unique experience. She's got a great story, and to show how all of us can take manageable steps to achieve our dreams. It is one of the best, it's almost like a how-to book. It's not really... Um, set at that, but it really is a, a roadmap to kind of, you know, s take steps to achieve your dreams. Crazy is a compliment is a great book of offering a blend of inspiring stories, practical tools, getting started, thinking big, going big, and also integrating work and family in all of that. You know, she's uh, it's a great guest, it's a great book, and I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Okay, so without further ado, here's Linda Rotenberg. Linda, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Great to be here. Uh, you know, I absolutely love this book, Crazy is a Compliment. And, you know, I read a lot of books on the show, and um, I just could not put this down once you guys sent me the copy, and it's just a fascinating read. Tell me a little bit more about you. Educate my listeners, if you can, and, and the genesis of the book. Sure. Well, I grew up in just outside of Boston, and had a traditional upbringing. My, my dad has worked as an attorney his whole life. My mom ended up uh, staying home to raise three kids, and my parents are incredibly loving, and they've always been incredibly risk-averse. And so a little bit of this kind of rubbed off on me, and I went straight through from college to law school and got to law school and realized I had no interest in practicing law and had an opportunity to go to Latin America for a little while, was in Chile and then Argentina, fell in love with the culture there, started learning tango and following right. soccer teams, football teams in Buenos Aires, <laughs> and um, eventually started looking around and realizing that this was now the mid-90s and how strange it was that all the young people I was meeting aspired to government jobs. And when I would ask why they weren't starting a business, this was the era of you know, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, they looked at me like I was nuts. And this really hit home when one day I was late for a meeting and was in a taxi cab and learned that my driver had an engineering degree. Right. So I asked him, I said, well, excuse me, but you know, what are you doing driving a cab? And he looked at me and said, well, what else would I be doing? Neither the government nor the few large corporations have any use for my skills. And I realized 
that I couldn't think of the word in Spanish for entrepreneur. And it turned out that at the time, there really wasn't a commonly used word in either Spanish or Portuguese. And this, to me, epitomized the whole problem that this was the era when you could get a microcredit loan for $50 if you were starting a very, very small scale enterprise. Or if you were one of the top 10 families, you could get $50 million in private equity. But that there was no support, there was no mentorship, there were no networks for for anybody wanting to just start a business. So I went home and uh, told everyone my idea. They said I was insane, that there were no entrepreneurs to support in Latin America, the rest of the world. I ended up meeting with one, one, one guy who people said I kept talking to that he was equally as nuts as I was. And he was a student at Harvard Business School at the time. And we came up with this idea and the end of my sort of formation story takes place or it's really the beginning uh, of, of Endeavor, the organization that we ended up creating, takes place at my parents' home outside of Boston. And I'm at, we're at the kitchen table and my parents overhear us concocting this plan for this global organization that's going to support young entrepreneurs and help them dream big. And my parents look at each other and I can tell they're, they're very unhappy. Right. And they thought that this, you know, one year sabbatical after law school was just like my, my equivalent of the Peace Corps. And I was going to come back and, and go practice. And so my dad comes over and says, you know, okay, Linda, we get the fact that maybe you don't want to practice law, but how about consulting? (laughs) (laughs) And that doesn't work. So my mom very gently in her loving way, kind of takes a different approach and reminds me I was now 28 and that my eggs are not getting any younger (laughs) and that maybe I shouldn't be flying around on airplanes if I ever want to have a family. Right. uh, Actually, last year when Facebook and Google started announcing, or Apple started announcing egg freezing programs for their young employees, I told my mom she was just ahead of the time. (laughs) But, But to end the story, but this is really, I think, you know, what has motivated me both to launch Endeavor and then to write Crazy as a Compliment was that I remember this moment. I remember sitting at this table and this thinking, what do I do? Do I do what's safe and expected or I do what's unsafe and unknown? And to me, it came down to choosing fear and hope. Yeah. And, and I, I knew I had to do this. And I, committed myself that I was going to help other dreamers going through this same scary moment when no one believed when everyone said they were crazy, but when they felt that they had to, they had to follow their passions. I love that. It resonates with me so well. You know, I I think back, I'm 46 and I think back Mm -hmm. to prior to joining, I got in the Marine Corps and you know, it's kind of, um, kind of that traditional safe job. I mean, you might not think it's safe, but it is, it's a guaranteed paycheck, right? And you, and, um, I, I remember I had these flashes of entrepreneurship prior to that. I studied entrepreneurs. I was passionate about them. Always thought about being an entrepreneur. But then when I got in the Marine Corps, I thought, well, okay, you know. And I kind of put that out of my mind. And I think back, and I, after reading uh, your story and hearing that again, I, I think back to all those moments where people said, "Well, why don't you just do the safe thing? That's crazy." And I just think about how many times, how many times do you think that's happening all over the globe or throughout our the, the ages where a dream has been squashed where somebody was mm-hmm. supposed to carry something. You know, that's what, that's what keeps coming to my mind when I think about that, because we've all been there where someone told us we're nuts and we're like, yeah, we are nuts. I'm going to go become a lawyer or whatever, you know, I'm going to do the safe thing. Exactly. And I think that 
you know, I decided after after I was known as La Chica Loca for about <laughs> a you know, decade in Latin America, I decided All right, I'm going to own it. And yeah, I'm crazy. And, and I'll take that as a compliment. That's really became my mantra. And, and in fact, you know, working with I've now worked with a thousand entrepreneurs in 22 countries. And I find a lot of the times the problem is that they're not thinking big enough. Yeah. And so I've come up with a corollary to my phrase, which is that if you're not being called crazy, maybe that means you're not thinking big enough. You know, I love that you said that. It's so true. In fact, even just recently, I had a um, oh, he's kind of a, a personal mentor from the entrepreneurship front and helping me in my journey. And he always says that he says, you don't think big enough. You got to think bigger. You think, and you Mm-hmm. And I and I even tell my kids that, and it's so true. It, it doesn't cost anything more to think big, so why not think it? Think you know, shoot for the moon. Exactly, it takes just as much effort to go exactly. after a small dream as it does a big dream. You might as well get the big dream that's going to motivate you every day. You know, what do you say to that? You know, and I think a lot of times though, when we sit there and we're thinking big, and then all that resistance, that natural resistance, I think is just which I've just recently come to realize that's something you just have to deal with every single day, and it's actually kind of a gift because it, it's almost like a compass or a barometer of what you should be doing, right? The stronger the resistance, you probably should be focusing on that and working through it because something profound is probably going to happen on the other side of that. But how do you? How do you? Um, how do you get used to that chaos? I mean, you, your chapter, Chaos is Your Friend, I, my, one of my favorite chapters of the book. How do you get comfortable with the chaos? Well, I think there's there's sort of a few things embedded in that question. I think one is that my view on, on entrepreneurship is that the barriers are not financial, which people often think they're financial right. or they're structural or they're even cultural. And I, and I found they're really psychological. And so I think the first step is realizing that the the hardest person you're going to have to convince is actually yourself. And the analogy I always use is, is that the Bobby Jones, a great golfer, talks about golf the way I view entrepreneurship, which is it's a game played on a five-inch course, right. the distance between your ears. And that really that, that, if, that everyone's always looking for permission from other people, but you have to give yourself permission. And that's harder than you think. Yes. And but in terms of chaos, I, I really feel like chaos is the friend of the entrepreneur. That if the status quo is going to benefit all those in power, it's going to benefit the companies already in existence. And if part of what being an entrepreneur is about is disrupting the status quo, then you need a little you need a little chaos. And and it's funny that you say that you love that chapter because it's two of my favorite stories in the whole book um, come from that. And one is deals with internal chaos and is uh, the story of Walt Disney. Yes, on the train. Right? Yeah. Yep. yeah, who who really comes to L.A. with nothing in his pocket. He's a failed cartoonist. And he finally gets a break and comes up with this cartoon that has a modest success, Oswald, mm-hmm. uh, the lucky rabbit. And But mistakenly, he'd given away the rights to this. And by the way, I see this a lot where entrepreneurs come and give away most of their company, most of their ideas to the seed round, right? So we can all relate to him. Right. So uh, Oswald proves a success. It's being debuted in New York. Uh, Walt travels with his wife and he goes to the producer and thinks he's going to get a promotion and instead finds out that uh, that the producer has uh, fired him, hired away all the animators, and left Walt with nothing. 
And so what does he do? Well, he's on uh, the train ride home. He's brooding, as his wife Lillian says, and he figures out that all the cute animals have been taken, the dog, the cat, so what's left but the mouse? (laughs) And the legend has it that on the train, he ends up taking out a pad and scribbling uh, a drawing of a mouse with uh, pearly buttons and velvet red pants. And of course, this becomes Mickey Mouse. And I always say to people, well, who would you rather have, Mickey Mouse or Oswald the Rabbit? <laughs> right. So you better you better turn Cass into your friend. And I'll come back at the end to remind me because my most favorite story is at the, at the end of that chapter. But I'll come back to it at the end of the podcast. You know, it's it is. I love the part of the story too, where he was wanting to name it Mortimer, and his wife's yeah. like, "No, it's too sissy." You know, think about what about a good Irish name like Mickey or something like that. I thought that was great. <laughs> Exactly. You know, it is so true. I think the idea is, you know, it's this myth we kind of, and I talk about this about about planning, We this myth of planning, thinking we have to come up with these linear, perfect plans and execute them flawlessly. And that's how we, how we achieve success. But it's actually, it's a pretty jagged line, sometimes backwards. It's all about setbacks. And I don't even like to call them failures, really, because it's those setbacks in the case like you just gave with, if we hadn't had a setback, we wouldn't have Mickey. And so that's the way you've got to look at everything. This, this season that I'm in or this kind of setback I'm in, or even if you want to classify it a failure, there's actually a blessing if you can just keep working through it. And, and the tenacity really is, seems to be the overriding characteristic or trait that, that is so needed, I think. Right. Well, totally. And I, I think this is why I hate business plans. I always yeah. tell people, stop planning, start doing. I'm, I'm, I was on a TV show with someone who said they had written a 70 page business plan as a very oh, successful my. entrepreneur. And I nearly fell off my seat and said, are you kidding me? Right. I, I hate business plans for that very reason is that you're never going to follow your plan. Or if you do, then you're probably not going to see opportunities that come along the way that are, you know, that are better to pivot towards. And, and to your point about setbacks, I I remember thinking I was doing something wrong because it was about three years into Endeavor or four years and it wasn't getting easier. And I thought, oh, I thought the startup phase is going to be the hard, but now it's going to be easy. And in fact, what I love about what I do and my work is Endeavor is really about that scale up phase, right? Mm -hmm. It's about these inflection points. And what a mentor of mine said that I've always, you know, kept in mind is he said, look, it's a you're a pioneer. It's supposed to be hard. If it were easy, someone would have done your idea before right. you. And I sort of think that, okay, hard is normal. Right. And in fact, I get nervous when things are too easy. And in fact, going back to Walt Disney, one of yeah. my favorite lines of his is that he said that he feels more comfortable when things, or he felt more comfortable when things were chaotic than when things were smooth as whipped cream. So I always think of him and I'm like, if things are smooth as whipped cream, some shoe is about to drop. That's right. <laughs> but it's in yeah. that chaos that I feel also that entrepreneurs really have these opportunities to move forward because if you're a big corporation, you're kind of stuck, you're not agile. And so we should just take these signs of it being hard is meaning we're onto something that other people haven't really attempted before. Yeah, I love you said that. It's, it's more about uh, it, we spend so much time, energy, and resources trying to eliminate chaos, and that's really kind of a foolhardy endeavor because it's you know the fire is always going to be there. So why try to put out the fire? Instead, learn how to exploit the fire. It's almost yeah. Like- in fact, run into the fire. My, in fact, um, I think I don't know whether it's it's training for firefighters. They actually have a phrase, run into the fire. Like that's what you're supposed right. to do. You're not supposed to run away. It's, it's actually a, a, a technique for survival. Um, I don't know the full details, but I know that it's called run into the fire. Oh, I got so many questions I have for you. I mean, <laughs> you know, it just, I love this topic. And again, it's, it has to, so much has to do with, um, 
again, limiting beliefs, overcoming fear. I think, um, and again, kind of going back to what I talked about, the fear piece. Do you use fear as a compass and a barometer? I'm like, yes, if this is really making my stomach tight and my throat, my throat clamp up, what, you know, I need to focus on this. Do you, do you kind of subscribe to that theory? Well, I, uh, or do, I guess, or I, do you try to eliminate it? I guess, or you try to eliminate fear from your life. Again, I don't, I don't mean to make it sound like you're, um, to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to be like a, you know, always seeking for this thrill because we all like kind of comfort. I'm not, I guess that's one. I don't want to steer it down that way, but I guess. Well, I look- but I think that you're, you're exactly right. Like on the one hand, I realize that when things are chaotic, like that's, that's when there's, that's when you, you kind of take a breath and that's your opportunity. And whether that chaos is of your own doing, right. Whether the problem, right. but on the other hand, to your point, you know, and I, and I, and I write about this in, in crazy compliment as well, is that our notion of risk taking and entrepreneurship is all wrong. And that what we imagine entrepreneurs to be and why there is so much fear is people feel like they're these, you know, swashbuckling daredevils who bet the farm and go all in and, when I was was studying not just my own entrepreneurs, but stories of of entrepreneurs that we've all kind of heard of, I, I was intrigued by actually how much the best entrepreneurs are risk minimizers, yeah. not risk maximizers. Right. So start with the first thing I hear a lot is, "Oh my God, well I'm going to have to mortgage my house. I can't do this. I'm going to, you know, I don't want to bankrupt my family." Well, most entrepreneurs don't bet the farm. It turns out that half the Inc. 500 companies, so half the fastest growing companies today started with $5,000 or less. And with that really surprised me, that number. And with uh, crowdfunding and crowdsourcing, there's actually a way to get to test our ideas with really um, minimal amount of sort of cash laid out. I also think that when you look at some of the best entrepreneurs, you know, I, I wrote about Sarah Blakely of Spanx, who creates this billion dollar company because she doesn't have the right pantyhose. But she didn't leave her job. She sold fax machines right. for two years until she knew this company was going to take off. And to me, the even more you know uh, quintessential story is the story of Phil Knight of Nike. Well, Nike's motto is just do it. You think of him, mm-hmm. he would be this kind of maverick. But, but it turns out that he um, I had always heard the story that Phil Knight sold uh, Nike shoes out of his Plymouth Valiant car. Turns out some other guy was selling the shoes. Phil Knight was an accountant. His dad made him be an accountant. He was doing people's taxes for almost a decade right. before he left full time to go to Nike. And that's when the company takes off. So I feel like you can start small. You can you know, get get things tested. And then as I said, the best entrepreneurs aren't looking to maximize risk. They're looking to minimize it. It's just they're also willing to kind of embrace this discomfort that comes with the instability, that stability is not a, a necessarily a, something we should aspire for. Yeah, and that's how, that's how you – yeah, I like you said that because that's how you remain calm within that chaos because we do – it is a myth. I think if you're on the outside looking at it, you do think it's these large – huge frightening leaps of of okay you know betting the farm or leaps of faith where you say yep this is this is what you have to do to be an entrepreneur but you're absolutely right it's almost like and i think you talk about this in um uh the eat the elephant one bite at a time talking mm-hmm. in, the, in the whiteboard chapter where yeah. um 
it, that's, it's just a series of small little steps. And when you break it down that way, yeah, you're in a chaotic situation and it can be scary. But just like in those examples you gave right there, um, it doesn't have to be this, you know, one big leap of faith. It's something about kind of, like you said, one little small step at a time and breaking it up into small manageable steps. Yeah. And look, one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is that I was feeling frustrated that so many of the iconic examples of entrepreneurship recently focus on Facebook and Tesla and these kind of moonshots at Google and they're these massive innovations. And I find that it discourages as many people as it encourages. People say, well, I don't have an idea for the next Facebook, so I can't be an entrepreneur. Right. And what I've come to believe in the entrepreneurs I work with around the world, it's as much about innovation, these mini innovations, as it is about these, you know, these break the mold innovations. So to me, what you were saying about one step at a time, these innovations, that that actually can add up to something pretty massive. You know, I like the chat. The chapter really resonated with me too, obviously, because I'm a leadership junkie. That leadership 3.0. Chapters is absolutely brilliant, you know. And I talk a lot, and again, this comes from my with the Marine Corps, where we push the leadership responsibility down to the absolute lowest level, where you have decentralized decision making mm-hmm. because it's a chaotic environment, right? You want people with yeah. eyes on opportunities and eyes on the enemy to make decisions. If you push decisions up some bureaucratic chain, then you lose the opportunity. Yes. And um, I've had f- quite a few entrepreneurs on the show, and we've talked about that. And I've asked them, do you consider themselves a leader? So I think it's very refreshing that you put this in there because at some point you had a, a moment in your period where you're like, oh, my gosh, I got to be a leader too, kind of, <laughs> in, right? Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I think many entrepreneurs see themselves as founders but don't, but are anti-bureaucracy. And right. see the problem is being a leader means bureaucracy, and that's bad, right? Right. So for me, yeah, when my my kind of first aha moment came when I was, um, we had gotten Endeavor's case study at Harvard Business School, and I was calling my assistant at the time, and I was so happy, and she got on the phone and started yelling at me that I'd forgotten to authorize payroll. And I said, okay, well, I'm sure somebody else did it. Can I tell you my story now? And she said, Linda, you're the CEO. You're the only one authorized to pay payroll and you have to understand your employees need to pay rent. And I kind of thought, I'm like, what employees? I don't have employees. We're all on the same team. What are you calling? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and she said, that's it. You're fired uh, from payroll. And, um, and I sort of realized, oh my God, if I don't start stepping up and being a leader, I didn't realize that no one at that time had taken vacation because they hadn't seen me take vacation. I thought everybody sets their own rules. If you want to take vacation, you take vacation. And they were looking to me to set the tone from the top. Right. And that was a very hard for me to make that adjustment and say, how do I lead in a way that is, to your earlier phrase, authentic and is me, but is giving people the processes that actually they, they crave? That, that's been a struggle that I would say started at that moment about three years into building Endeavor, but that lasts today. We're now 17 years in. Uh, you know, it's, it's such a great... And it's so true, you know, breaking through that myth of leadership that you have to be this kind of larger than life charismatic figure. And I love the term that you have in the chapter of the flossum, you know, about, yes. about <laughs> less super, yes. more, less awesome in your flaws, right? 
you know, and I think there's so much strength in that authenticity and the vulnerability. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to wear all your emotions on the sleeve and, and give all the gory details about your life. But at the same time, you need to be real and authentic. I think you gave the example when you were struggling with your um, your husband with, with the, the cancer and, and the, the pregnancy and, and all this. And you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting to launch and do all these things. And didn't you have I think I remember reading in the story that you had some employee that come up to you or someone on your team had come up to you and said wow I feel like I can you know I can connect with you or something like that am I paraphrasing that right Where, yeah, yeah exactly look I felt you know I had two things one is I was an entrepreneur that was pretending that I had to grow up and be a leader right. and also as as a woman I did feel that um, I you know, had to separate my personal life from my professional life. I didn't want a gossipy environment. I wanted a very professional environment. And I felt like I had to create this wall and, you know, and, and just be strong and be independent. And um, then now, close to, se- close to seven years ago, um, my husband is a, a writer, Bruce Filer, uh, got a diagnosis of bone cancer. It was an aggressive diagnosis. It usually, bone cancer usually affects children. So it's very rare for an adult to get it. Right. And we at the time had three-year-old twin daughters. And I, this was right when Endeavor was expanding and, you know, in, in, a, in a major way. And I called up my board and I said, look, I can't travel for a year. I'm going to go to chemotherapy um, appointments. I'm going to be there for my daughters. And I just want you to know that. And what I say is that it never surprised me that the team and the board stepped up and that we more than hit our aggressive expansion plans without me, you know, traveling or even coming into the office very much. But what surprised me is the moment that you talked about, which is that when I came back, when, you know, thank goodness Bruce is now, uh, Seven years, can- six years cancer-free. Our girls turn ten next in in two weeks uh, on April Fool's uh, April fifteenth uh, on Tax Day. <laughs> and sorry, they're very into April Fool's Day, which is tomorrow. <laughs> right. um, but when I came back full time, you know, at that point, people were were interested in knowing how Bruce was doing, how the girls were doing, and I I didn't want to hide it, so I just opened up naturally and. That that moment that you said that actually two of my young employees came up to me and pulled me aside and said, look, Linda, you know, we always admired you, but we thought you were superhuman. And they meant that in not a good way in that I wasn't relatable. Right. But now that now that we see you as a human being, now, now we'll follow you anywhere. And and so what I've tried to say is, wow, here I was trying to be superhuman when really I just needed to be less super and more human. I love that. You know, it's so true. I remember having, you know, in the Marine Corps, you, you go in and you have these ideas of what the ideal Marine Corps officer and Marine Corps yeah. leader is. And I remember there was a General Peter Pace, and he was um, talking to us, and it was six months into my, uh, all of us had to go through an infantry school. I, I became a pilot, but we all had to go through this mm. infantry officer course, right? And he was sitting there talking about his time with um, in Vietnam with his first platoon. And he lost six guys in that platoon. And he's sitting there talking. And this guy is so unassuming. He's very skinny, um, very, yeah. like a quiet voice. 
And I'm thinking, wow, this is not the what, you know, because in my mind I said, I got to be this John Wayne figure, which I'm not. You know, I'm 5'9", at the time was 145 pounds, so I just mm-hmm. was not an imposing figure, right? But mm-hmm. I, was, and I was looking at him, and he was just talking, and he was choking up, and he was tearing, and the love that was emanating from that, it kind of mm-hmm. just showed. It's kind of the same thing, you know, it's, it's not about being invincible, right, or superhuman. It, mm-hmm. it is about being open, and at times vulnerable. Yeah. It's not about being rigid. I think that is the... I think that's always kind of been the real leadership currency, but I think it's even more prevalent or even more powerful now than than any time in history, I think. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I think that the millennials and the young people are expecting they want just as they want authentic brands and they want authentic companies, they want authentic leaders. But that's hard because – you know, most of us grew up thinking Patton and Caesar right. and these stone-faced yeah. people, like that's a leader. And so you kind of have to thrust those images aside and create your own, you know, your own image of you as, as a real person. That's hard. It is. But it's so powerful. You know, if you can if you can figure it out, I think it's so good. You know, my favorite chapter is the father of four daughters. I love your mm. your, your go big and go home chapter, you know, the the, the letter to Eden and Tybee. Um, I just what a great chapter. And I love let me just pull a couple quotes out here from my readers. And I love how you said before you really get into the the steps, it says, you know, what does matter is that you understand this is you're speaking to your daughters. What does matter is that you understand that accepting the world as it is will likely lead to a life that's well acceptable. If you want to have a more fulfilling life, you'll look at the world around you not as it is, but as it can be. And then you'll take a step or two to turn that vision into reality. I don't know. I, that really, what a powerful statement. And it kind of sums up everything that we're kind of obligated to do, especially as parents and even entrepreneurs, right? I, I think so. I think that, yeah, if I had to sum up what entrepreneurship is, it is that. It's, it's, it's looking at the world not as it is, but how is, as it might be, and then propelling yourself and then others towards that, that vision. But I think that... Um, the other aspect of this chapter in the go big and go home, you know, I was a go big or go home person. And then I realized, no, go big and go home is, uh, there's a lot of conversations now about work-life balance and that term balance just personally stresses me out because you know, as a parent, nothing's ever bad. It's always always off kilter, but that that's okay. And that what, what, to me, to strive for some perfect equilibrium was, was, was going to be so stressful and just not achievable. But what, what I do believe in is work-life integration, and what I lo- what I believe in is having your families be part of whatever it is you're doing that's passionate. And to me, it's very strange that he, so so much of entrepreneurship is also about creating a better life for the the loved ones around you. And yet, if all we're doing is working and we don't have time to be with those loved ones, then really, by the time we achieve our dreams, if we do, like who's left <laughs> behind us or surrounding right. us? So I feel like we have to start talking about that and. That it's really important that our that our children and our families are sort of part of our our, our ventures in some way, and that that there's an integration in in terms of our, our our work and our home lives. And while it's never perfect, that we that they at least know that that we're trying to do both. Yeah. Yeah. Just do you ever feel like you're running out? Of, I mean, for me, it feels like I just oh my gosh, time is going so quick. I feel like I'm running out of time. And that's what I always feel like I struggle every day is like, what can I accomplish today? And sometimes I don't know if that's healthy because sometimes you guys got to let it, you got to really kind of um, take a breath and see where it takes you. But I just feel like I'm running out of time. I don't know if you feel that way or not. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, 
No, I, I don't know about feeling running out of time. I just feel like everything is spinning so fast and, yeah. that, and, and you realize when you have a sick parent or a sick father, how, how, what a thin line you are. That's what I realize is that you think everything, you have everything together and there's always a moment where things are humming along and right. everything's good. And then something <laughs> cracks and you're like, Oh my God, right. <laughs> this, this thread, uh, you know, uh, is so thin and one thing can set it off. And I think that's life, right? It is. And I think yeah. that so many of us are now also not only, you know, I'm 46 as well, not, not only in this period of raising kids, but of, of, as my husband says, bringing down parents just as we're bringing up kids. And so many conversations I'm having recently are people who, you know, have, have, uh, aging parents to care for. And that's the other thing is I try to feel like as entrepreneurs, whether we're employing two people or 200 people, you know, what is the environment we would want and how do we make sure that our, our team members, our employees, you know, feel like they can come to us if they have, an, an ailing child or parent and that they, it's not, they're not going to be penalized if, if they need time to go regroup and, and focus on that part of their lives. I, I don't have the answers, but I feel like, you know, it's really a good thing that we're now starting to ask all these questions. Yeah. Well, gosh, I love what you do. I love this book. I love Endeavor. We didn't talk much about Endeavor, but I mean, um, I, you know, I, I'm curious and the more entrepreneurial I've become over the last seven to eight years, the more I've um, that I've done this podcast and talked to people like you, mm. I've become more optimistic about the future, and especially with the with with the millennials. Do you feel? I mean, you you write a, a, a quite a bit about the, about the millennials in this book, but do you feel optimistic about the future? I feel like we're in an entrepreneurial um, kind of revolution, or maybe that's just when I become more aware. But it does feel different to me than it did maybe say in the '80s when entrepreneurship was really kind of hot then too. What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I think that going back to my parents, I I just think we're not in a world where people are making a decision at 20 that's going to last their whole life, whether they decide to, you know, I think that we're in a world where um, certainly my girls are going to probably work some time for themselves. Four in 10 Americans now work as least part of their career as an independent contractor. They're probably going to work for somebody else at some point. They may work in and out of the private sector and the nonprofit sector. And I think that that's great. And I've, I've, I've come to believe that entrepreneurship isn't a career path so much as it's a mindset and a skill set. And it's something we all need is this ability to continuously reinvent ourselves. And that even the comp- the people that stay inside companies, um, people call them entrepreneurs. I call them skunks because <laughs> <Yeah, right. laughs> uh, their role is just stink up the joint. But they're you really even inside a big big company have to continuously reinvent your role and what you're doing. So I think that that's exciting because for me, uh, my biggest fear is boredom, and I think we're not in a we're in a world that's going to continually be chaotic. It's increasingly global. And I think that that's scary to some, but I think that if you have this mindset that you can keep reinventing yourself and that you're not set, and if you're feeling like you're in a rut, if you're feeling stuck, you can get out of it and pivot and do something else. That, that to me is exciting. And back to what we were saying earlier, you know, just this notion that half the fastest growing companies today were started with you know, $5,000 or less and 60% less than $10,000. And you think of how crowdfunding and crowdsourcing is really still in its infancy, uh, that it doesn't take that much to get an idea off the ground anymore, that uh, you can do things, you know, that 
that, that aren't necessarily making your lifetime decision. I remember when I was coming out of school and if you didn't stay in a place five years, that was terrible right. on your resume. Right. You know, now people look at, my friend Reed Hoffman writes about tours of duty and, and the millennials are, are thinking of their career in like three-year chunks. And I think to me, um, that, that's kind of exciting that we can each think of our lives in kind of three-year chunks. And so many people I know at, at my kid's school you know, took some time off, but are now thinking of doing something else, or they lost their job. And now they're thinking, well, do I get another job? Or do I take that passion of mine and, and, and try to try to make it something that's economically viable as well? Well said. Well, gosh, crazy is a compliment is the book. I highly recommend it to everybody out there. It's probably one of the best reads I've had in line. I read a lot of books on the show. And then and, um, I, good job on this. I mean, just fantastic Thank work. I, I love it. And um, how can people? And get congratulations to Ed on the on the podcast and on your own entrepreneurial oh, venture yeah. and on raising four daughters. How old are they? What what age range is? Yeah. So we, my oldest is a senior this year. She's graduating, heading into college in the fall. Wow. So she'll, she'll be eighteen in May. I just had one that turned sixteen a couple weeks ago, and then I've got wow. a, a, a twelve year old just turned last week, and then a ten year old in December. So it's uh, it's chaotic. And I got <laughs> okay. Well, we need a separate podcast on parenting teenage girls. Yes. Like, oh my, my gosh. They're about to enter their double digit years, <laughs> and I'm terrified of what's to come. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, you know. But I mean, I, th I think um, I know that ten. I tell you, the ten to twelve is is you'll start to. It's different. It's weird. I mean, it's weird to see how my wife, um, when they got in that ten to twelve, they became closer to me. And then as oh. they've gotten older, getting coming closer out of the nest, they get closer to my wife. And I think that's natural. I don't know. I mean, it just seems mm -hmm. it's a, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to raise boys. So I don't know. I'm outnumbered here. <laughs> yeah. My husband calls, calls himself a holly. A holly is a tree with these red bears and it's, a, there's one male surrounded by all these females. So oh, you, you are a holly as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. How could people get in touch with you? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Twitter is at Linda Rotenberg. So feel free to, to reach me there. And um, they're endeavor.org and lindarotenberg.org are, uh, .com are my websites. If you want to learn more. Very good. I'll have links to and all crazy is a compliment. Yes. They can crazy. Go read and yeah, yeah. This... I look forward to hearing people's feedback. Thank you for yours. Yes. I think it should be mandatory reading. If you're even, if you, even if you don't consider yourself an entrepreneur or if you're even thinking about it, I think you, this is the book you need to get because it'll change your mindset. And uh, anyway, it speaks well to a lot of the stuff we talk about on the show. Thanks for coming on the show, Linda. I, I really, it's a blessing to have met you. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership eBook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 